Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. with many problems, one problem reigns supreme, the climate emergency. The stakes have never been higher. The odds of bipartisan agreement on this issue have possibly never been lower. But there's a new president in town, and he's hot for science. We've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. It's Earth Week at Today Explained. We're going to talk about what's in store for this planet. The future of our future. Welcome to Earth. Week on Today Explained. It's Today Explained. I'm Sean ramos and here we are at the end of our Earth Week. We are wrapping up our coverage with a reminder of what's worth protecting and with a real-life plan to protect it. Or at least a plan to protect like 30% of it. The plan is called 30 by 30. It's kind of a big global push. Katrin Einhorn covers biodiversity for the New York Times. There's broad scientific consensus that we are experiencing a global biodiversity collapse. Like a million plant and animal species are threatened by extinction. I mean, it threatens like entire ecosystems. This biodiversity loss is not just a tragedy. It's the single biggest problem we face. A less wild world is less able to provide for our needs. Less able to maintain dependable weather and seasons. Less able to absorb our impact. And so what to do about it? And there's broad consensus that we need to save the nature that still exists. These big intact swaths of, you know, tropical rainforest, and these other important ecosystems need to be preserved. And so, you know, a bunch of conservation organizations have joined with governments uh, led by, you know, Britain and France and Costa Rica to really try and get the world to commit to set aside 30% of its land and water by 2030. And it's going to be hammered out 
at the UN biodiversity meeting in Kunming, China this fall. And why 30? Why is that the number? You know, scientists would say that really, given the scale of the crisis, we need more. Actually, it should be more like 50%. But I think 30% was what was agreed upon just in terms of sort of political viability. Hmm. And because it maybe has a ring to it, 30 by 30? I, you know, they seem to love the ring because uh, the last <laughs> UN sort of push on this front was 20 by 20. It was like 20 targets to hit by 2020. 2010, the International Year of Biodiversity. This is our chance to inject a new resolve into safeguarding and repairing our life support system. Countries of the world did not do a good job hitting those targets. None of the 20 objectives set a decade ago by some 150 countries have been fully met and only six were partially achieved. If anything, I think that there is, both with the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, it seems like the world is really coming to realize the, the real problem that we're in. And, and so there does seem to be like a lot of interest in, in trying to make this happen. You mentioned that really scientists would prefer 50% of the planet to be conserved. But if by some miracle this 30 target is hit, Will there be relief in the conservation movement? Will people feel like we're good? It will certainly be a victory. I mean, look, it's it's not going to be easy, in part because every country is different, right? So not every country is the same when it comes to biodiversity wealth. Here in Tambopata, Peru, E.O. Wilson once found more species of ant in a single tree than there are in all of the British Isles. And scientists have seen this pattern all over the world. More species exist near the tropics. And so, you know, what does it look like for countries that have already cut down a lot of their old growth forests are now going to tell tropical countries, you can't cut down yours, right? It's, it's, it's a really tricky, thorny thing. Conservationists really hope that the world can kind of come together for a common good and figure out a way to make this fair. And that's what they will try to do in Kunming, China in the fall. I imagine part of the question here is about what preservation really looks like. Tell me what that means. Is it just you put up a you know barbed wire fence and no one can touch this land? Or is it more nuanced? Yeah, not at all. There's actually a growing consensus that that is the wrong way to do conservation. Huh. That is a traditional way that it's been done in the West, right? There's this idea of sort of pure wilderness. John Muir changed the way a country viewed its wilderness. Not a resource to be harvested, he argued, but a treasure to be preserved. In fact, like what a whole body of research is showing us is that lands that are managed by indigenous people are really biodiverse. In fact, he showed that they are at least or more biodiverse than like national and state parks. Hmm. National parks or these, you know, let's say parks that are that are set aside only for nature, a lot of them actually don't have a lot of biodiversity, right? So they're called paper parks. They exist on paper. But in fact, because of poaching, because local communities aren't bought into this idea or because um, they're not being actually managed appropriately, they're kind of nature wastelands. And so even like the sort of really like legacy conservation groups have come around and said, look, like indigenous rights need to be respected. These 
lands need to be managed sustainably. Um, it's not about kicking people off the land. Hmm. Tell me a bit more about what we know about how biodiversity functions in lands that are managed by indigenous communities. It's not like there's one way that indigenous peoples manage the land, right? On the contrary, there's a vast array of indigenous cultures, all with their own relationships, their own worldviews, their own cultures, right? But there is a uniting theme of making a living off the land sustainably because you live there and you want to preserve it for future generations. You want your children to be able to eat the fish from the same waters that you eat the fish from. And that's not the case when you think about our global economy and corporations. You know, there's a desire to extract as much profit as possible and, you know, you can move on if necessary. So that's a big difference. It's about local communities making a living from nature without taking too much. And do we know how much land worldwide at present is is managed by indigenous communities? Yeah, this number is somewhat contested, but everyone can agree that it's more than a quarter. More than a quarter? Yeah. One example that comes to mind for me because of what we've done on the show before is the Amazon and the sort of ongoing fight between, for example, the Brazilian government and indigenous communities in the Amazon over land control. Since the 1970s, the Amazon has been steadily deforested. Nearly 20% has already been wiped out. Is there something sort of in that particular instance that can teach us how this might work across different countries and cultures? You know, there's many indigenous groups that live in the in the Amazon region, and they're such a great example of this. I mean, they are a really um, striking and, and unfortunately tragic example of this, right? Uh, in that they are often putting their bodies on the line to protect their land. A Wawao are a tiny band of just 120 indigenous people in the Amazon rainforest. They're patrolling what's meant to be a protected reserve. But more and more, they're discovering incursions. This track was carved through the trees to steal timber or create new farms. I'm scared sometimes, he says, but we are fighting. Six weeks later, Paolo Paulino Guajajara is now dead. I spoke with one coalition of indigenous groups from Amazonian countries. They believe that 30 percent is nowhere near enough. Hmm. So they want 30 by 30 to be at least 50%. They think that indigenous people managing the land is really the way to, to sort of staunch this crisis that we're in. Okay, so I'm not really sure how the management structure of this 30 by 30 movement works, but do indigenous people have prominent seats at the table? Not when it comes to this UN agreement. Hmm. It's a structural problem because countries are the ones that have the votes. It's hard enough to get these countries to agree on anything. And, you know, there's so many different indigenous groups that, that would be party to this. I mean, I don't even know how that would work. But I do think that people understand that indigenous people have been better stewards of nature. They are going to be directly affected by this. They are both directly affected by the loss of nature, as well as whatever agreement is reached in China. And so certainly people are paying lip service to the rights of indigenous people and the importance of listening to their voices, the question is, will that really matter in the actual negotiations? 
The United States seems like it'd be well-suited to promote the voices of indigenous communities in this effort, considering the historic appointment of Interior Secretary Deb Holland as, you know, the first ever Native American to lead a cabinet agency. So as a Pueblo woman, I was raised to feel connected to the earth and to carry on the legacy of environmental stewardship of countless generations who came before me, who took seriously their obligations to pass our natural treasures on to future generations. What's the U.S. involvement here? President Biden ordered his team to, you know, look into how we would set aside 30 percent of the U.S. by 2030. But it's a little tricky because we are not party to this U.N. biodiversity agreement. I mean, if you think of it a little bit like the Paris Agreement for Climate, there's also this biodiversity agreement. They're they're not exactly the same, but we can kind of think of them as sort of one for climate and one for biodiversity. And the U.S. hasn't signed on to that. So the U.S. will go to China, will we'll sort of weigh in, will actually be very active in the talks, but it, it doesn't have a vote. Like, it has never signed on to the treaty. It's actually the only country in the world other than the Vatican. So even without the Pope and the United States signed on, it does sound like there's enough momentum here to give this 30 by 30 push some legitimacy. And it also sounds like it's just a more realistic idea of what conservation could be you know, a way to use land while protecting it instead of walling it off and putting up a sign that says, stay out? I think it's definitely a step forward. It's a better understanding of how humans and nature interact. We in in the United States, in the West, we, we make a distinction between humans and nature. We've used that distinction throughout this conversation. But, you know, I was speaking with First Nations leader in Canada, Stephen Nita. I'm part of the Dene Nation of uh, First Nations people in northern Canada, uh, relatives to uh, your, my southern brothers and sisters down in Apache and Navajo country. And I kept talking about, you know, Indigenous folks protecting nature. And he kept saying, we're not protecting nature. We're part of nature. My people, anyways, refer to Earth as an island, and our creator as Nu Tsine. Nu is uh, the term we use for an island. We say an island in an ocean, or an island in a big lake. Earth to us is an island within the sea of the universe. And in any island, there's a finite resource to support the, the life that exists on that island. If you overextend the use and of that resource, that island becomes uninhabitable. And we are nearing that point. It is frustrating that Indigenous people don't have a vote at the United Nations level. Science has proven that Indigenous people know what they're doing. Therefore, they should be given a better and a bigger platform so that they can share their knowledge. We have an opportunity today to to bring forward indigenous knowledge systems and value systems as how we relate to Mother Earth. You know, historically, yes, we created uh, protected areas and parks for animals and excluded people. But we haven't been systematic to protect enough and the right type of uh, lands to secure a healthy environment. That's the challenge and that's the opportunity.
Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, you've heard about the plan to protect 30% of the planet. Now it's time to celebrate the biodiversity that remains on this rock. Some of it we're still just only now discovering. So we are going out today with some fresh facts about the Earth. My name is Brian Anderson, and I am the editor of Down to Earth, Vox's new reporting initiative on the science politics, and economics of the biodiversity crisis. My favorite Earth fact discovered over the past year is just how much turning the volume down on ocean noise pollution helps out marine life. Sound is the primary medium through which most any marine mammal uses to communicate and find food and find potential mates. So we know that whales vocalize to talk to one another within their pod. Dolphins, similarly to whales, they use click-based vocalizations to talk with one another. Over the past couple of decades, with a increase in shipping traffic, primarily, the oceans have been getting louder and louder. And for all these marine creatures, this is really detrimental. But then all of a sudden, the oceans got eerily quiet when the pandemic came crashing down last spring. We can assume that this brief three-month period of really reduced noise levels in the oceans did have a positive effect. We haven't quite been able to measure that, but we do know from history, there's a very famous example after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a similar drop in shipping traffic, maritime traffic in general, resulted in less stress hormones in whales. 
This makes me really hopeful because the thing about noise is that it's really easy to turn it down. You can silence it at its source, and that's going to have an immediate impact, especially in the oceans. Hi, my name is Benji Jones, and I am a reporter at Vox focused on explaining the biodiversity crisis. My favorite thing that scientists discovered about the Earth in the last year is how wombats poop cubes. So wombats, um, for those of you who don't know them, are these adorable, fluffy marsupials in Australia. A wombat is closely related to a koala. These are the ones on the ground. The koala's in the tree. They're extremely chunky. I love them. Wasn't me. And a big mystery is why the poop that they leave behind is in cube form. So literally, they have piles of poop that is made up of cubes. So the secret is in their intestines. And what scientists have found is that wombats have various sections of the intestine of various thickness and elasticity, and they can vary the rates at which those sections compact the poop, and that's what leads to these cube-like structures. So it really is just about these unique intestine that the animals have. The question that is still kind of puzzling is, is why they're doing this at all, why they're leaving square poop behind. And some researchers think that it's to, to prevent the poop from rolling away because it is really how they mark their territory and communicate with other wombats. So wombats scramble around on, on rocks and logs that are slippery and, uh, and round poop might slide away. So the cube structure actually prevents any rolling from happening. Clever stuff. This makes me hopeful partly because I spent a lot of my time focusing on the depressing facts of biodiversity loss. Um, and this is a little break from that. And I just love that we're still learning secrets of nature today, even though we know so much, like there's still so much left to learn. And if nothing else, that's another reason to prevent further loss from happening. Hi, I'm Bird Pinkerton. I am a reporter-producer for Unexplainable, Vox's science podcast. My favorite thing scientists discovered about the Earth in the last year is that there are 100 million-year-old bacteria living at the bottom of the ocean. One of the things that I loved about this was I was talking to, um, like, a microbiologist who studies this stuff, and he was kind of like... We may have to redefine our definition of what it is to be alive. <laughs> so there's this part of the ocean known as the South Pacific Gyre. Uh, and it has very few nutrients because currents kind of swirl around it, but not really in it. Um, so it's known as a marine desert. And if you go down through 6,000 feet of water to the bottom, there are even fewer nutrients uh, down there. But... Scientists have pulled up bacteria from these bottom sediments. They used a research ship with a giant drill on the back to take samples of clay that had been deposited on the seafloor 101.5 million years ago and have been buried ever since. Back in the and they kind of fed these bacteria. And despite the fact that they are over a million years old, some of them, they came right back to life and just started multiplying. Uh, so they'd survived essentially in like the, the harshest possible 
conditions for for millions of years and we're just like ready to go. This makes me hopeful because even if we like wipe ourselves off the planet or wipe like a huge number of the species on the planet off the planet through climate change, like it's an indication to me that life is unbelievably hardy and like some form of life will find a way to hold on. Hello, I'm Eliza Barkley. I'm the science, health, and climate editor at Vox. Ocean acidification is like a huge kind of evil twin of climate change. Some of the the CO2 that we're emitting on Earth is actually getting trapped in the ocean, where it's it's like really problematic. It's affecting marine organisms like shellfish and coral. Um, And and so we, we need to find ways to basically mitigate this. And it turns out that seagrass does this naturally, which is really awesome. What these scientists found, they they wrote a paper that was published in March in the journal Global Change Biology, is that as seagrass performs photosynthesis, it's actually removing carbon dioxide from the water. And that is counteracting um, the acidifying effect of CO2 in the ocean. This is a relatively easy solution uh, compared to a lot of others for dealing with ocean acidification and also for um, removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike a lot of other climate solutions that require brand new technology that's not even proven, that needs to be scaled up, um, protecting and promoting restoring seagrass is a lot easier (laughs) than a lot of other things. So um, just knowing that there is one more benefit to protecting and restoring seagrass, I think is very helpful for making the case that this should be a top priority ecosystem as we think about, you know, what we need to protect going forward. Hey, I'm Brian Resnick. I'm a science reporter at Vox. My favorite thing that scientists have discovered over the last year are just new species, new types of life documented for the first time in the scientific literature. We still don't know what most of the life on Earth is. (laughs) Estimates range from 86% to as high as like 99% of all life on Earth is still undocumented. And, you know, even though we're living in this time of great biodiversity loss, there's just so much more to discover. Just one institution, the California Academy of Sciences, described 213 new species. I can go through the list, but it's like 101 ants and 22 crickets and 15 fishes and 11 geckos. Um, They discovered this, like, really pretty sea slug. It's named after roses because on the underside of the sea slug, there's these, like, pretty, like, kind of rose petal like uh, polka dots, and it's just a very little pretty creature. I actually talked to the researcher who discovered this um, sea slug, and he first saw it like 20 years ago and then couldn't find it again for like a decade or more. And so the amount of work it does to like just prove that what you found is a new species, like it can take decades to just spot something and then spot it again and then spot it again and do the work to make sure, like, this isn't anything like any of the other sea slugs that we've seen before. 
it makes me want to go out into the world or makes me like excited for other people to go out in the world and discover the extent of the beauty and the ingenuity and the precise biology of everything that exists on Earth. Like every time you discover a new species, you discover this like invention wrought by evolution. And yes, we also know we're living in this time of biodiversity loss, but in order to like protect things, we need to know that they exist and we need to know why they're special and we need to know how they live and where they live and document all these things in in scientific literature so we can protect them. So it gives me hope that we discover new species because you have to know it exists to be able to help it. That's it for Earth Week on Today Explained. Thank you so much for listening. Earth Week was brought to you by Miles Bryan, Muj Zaidi, Will Reed, Halima Shah, Cecilia Lay, Victoria Chamberlain, and Amina Alsadi, who's our supervising producer. We had edits from Jillian Weinberger, facts checked by Laura Bullard, engineering by Christian Ayala, but mostly Afim Shapiro, who dreamed up our theme, additional music from Breakmaster Cylinder, a touch of saxophone from MC Mike Chamberlain, Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's VP of Audio, today explained as part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And now that we're done with Earth Week, we're going to turn our attention to the gangbusters state of the housing market in the United States. And we need your help. If you are trying to buy a place right now, we want to hear about it. If you bought a place during the pandemic and are now second-guessing your purchase, we definitely want to hear about it. And if you're nowhere near either of those two but have some thoughts on the general boom and bust of the housing market in this country, tell us about that too. We've got this phone line where you can call and leave a message. The number is 202-688-5944 or... You can send us an email today explained at vox.com. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. We might use them on the show. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.